I don't know if you had the chance to see the latest Pixar film Onward before the stay-at-home bulletin was given to us, keeping us away from movie theaters. But it's a movie about a young boy named Ian who's turning 16 and he's coming of age. But at the age of 16, he still has a lot of questions. He's a bit awkward uh, in his life and he would like to figure out who he's supposed to be. And a bit of the reason that he finds that he's still searching is because his dad passed away during his mother's pregnancy, leaving a lot of questions that went unanswered. Now, if you haven't seen the movie, I'm not going to spoil it for us this morning, but I would like to give us a window into what the plot is all about. So let's check out the video of the plot this morning. In times of old, the world was full of wonder and magic. But times change. Morning, Mom. Hey, birthday boy. By the laws of yore, I must dub thee a man today. Kneel before me. That's okay. I have a gift from your dad. He just said to give you this when you were both over 16. <gasps> no way! It's a wizard staff. Dad was a wizard. What? Your dad was an accountant. This spell brings him back. For one whole day, Dad will be back. What? Back like back to life? That's not possible. It is with this. I'm going to meet Dad. to bring the rest of him back. Until then, ta-da! Oh, that's great. Dad, you look just like I remember. I think one of the interesting things about this movie is that when the dad comes back to life in that initial scene, that he only comes back to life waist down. He's only halfway there. And that brings some comic relief throughout the rest of the movie as the dad's trying to walk and he's stumbling over things. I think it also creates a bigger metaphor, perhaps a hint, that as Ian and his brother go on a journey to try to bring their dad back to life that day, that their dad's almost saying, you don't know the half of what you're going to experience, the half of what you're going to learn in the hours ahead. Isn't that like our human experience sometimes? That we launch out into an adventure, or we start something new, we feel like we have it figured out, but we don't know the half of the things that we're going to experience. Like, for instance, some of us have decided one day that we want to get a pet, right? And we think to ourselves, well, if I feed the thing and if I give it attention, it's going to follow me, it's going to listen to me, and it's going to be obedient to me. But it doesn't take long for us to realize, well, that's certainly not the case. Or perhaps we uh, get a new job offer and it's a different city and we want to relocate to a different city. Some of us think, well, that city's probably a lot like my city. And so what's the big difference? People do it, hundreds of, t- hundreds of people do it every single day. It's going to be no different for me. But then we realize that after we relocate, it's not just getting to know new streets and new places to go for the dry cleaners. But it takes 18 months or two years to get acclimated into a new place. Or perhaps we want to get married or we want to start having a family. We think to ourselves, hundreds of people do this every single day and they seem to do it with ease. And so it's going to be the same for us. But our life gets upended when we do something like that. 
Or perhaps we want to get our diet in shape, and so a couple of our friends convince us to go on Whole30 with them. And the first couple of days are great because we have accountability and we're trying something new. But then now we're quarantined to our home. We realize it's awfully hard to stock up on snacks that fit into this Whole30 diet. Perhaps because we're with our families all the time, we want to do a more deliberate attempt at family worship. We don't just want to rely upon the church, but we want to take our children's discipleship into our own hands. And so we schedule a night to get together. We're going to read the Bible together. Unfortunately, though, we go to one of those places in the scripture text where there's a lot of questions that we're not ready to answer. Like, why does Solomon have 700 wives and 300 concubines? And we have this this big glazed over look in our eyes and we think to ourselves, man, maybe we've bit off more than we can chew here. Or perhaps because of the shape of what's happening, the crisis in our communities, maybe we're having to find a different job or to change occupations, to switch gears and to do something new. We think to ourselves, changing jobs, changing industries, it's not gonna be that big of a deal. It's still people, it's still 40 hours a week, it's still a paycheck, but then we get into it And we realize there's more to this than what we had initially expected. Or perhaps for some of us, this has caused us to rethink about our priorities. We want to move back closer to the kids, closer to the grandkids. And what that's going to mean is retiring early. And we think to ourselves, it's going to be no big deal. There's plenty there to keep us afloat. But as we make the plans and as we start spending the money, we realize there's more going on here. We only know the half of it as we start this process. I don't know about you, but when I'm in moments like this, I think to myself, this is exciting. This is uh, terrifying. This is exhilarating all at the same time. But perhaps the governing question in these moments is, how are we going to find the strength to move forward, to move onward? Whenever it takes a bit more work and labor, and it takes greater sacrifices in this new thing that we're trying to do in our life. I think this is something that's going on in our passage and what's going on at this moment in the the story of Jesus. Uh, Many of the followers of Jesus are are excited about what could happen next and the crowds are getting bigger and bigger and they've got joyful and they've got a higher, joyful songs, they have a higher expectation of what Jesus might do. But I can only imagine as Jesus is going into Jerusalem, as he knows what's happening in the days ahead, he might even have said under his breath, You only know the half of what's going to happen next. But perhaps as we talk about the story once again, we'll find the courage to face our own challenges as Jesus faced his own challenge as he entered into the city of Jerusalem. What we find here is that not just the uh, events of this story um, tell the message of the story, but also the geography of Jesus' journey into Jerusalem tells a unique part of his story. We know that Jesus was just in Jericho. We see that in Mark chapter 10, and he comes into Jerusalem. Now, the distance between Jericho and Jerusalem is only 15 and a half miles. Now, for people like Jesus and his friends, this is not a long journey for those who walked everywhere they went. But as we look at the geography of Jericho to Jerusalem, we find that this is not the easiest journey to take. Jericho is 800 feet below sea level. And Jerusalem is 3,000 feet above sea level. The the elevation change in this journey is 3,800 feet. That's quite the climb. It's 
quite the ascent. I mean, what you need along the way there are some water stations and some goo packets in order to get from point A to point B in this journey. But perhaps this climb represents something about the story itself. Jesus' ministry has been a climb. From the days of casting out demons of a man in the synagogue in Capernaum early in Mark's story, to the countless miracles, to the countless sermons, to the countless confrontations with the religious authorities, with his inclusion of those who were outsiders and sinners, with the multiplication of food, with his journey to the Decapolis, and so on and so forth, Jesus has been giving so much effort in his and this opportunity to try to bring the kingdom of God among God's people. And so as he's coming into Jerusalem, this climb from Jericho to Jerusalem is a metaphor for what Jesus has done to this point. And so you and I can imagine that as Jesus is climbing up those steps into Jerusalem, and as the crowd begins to gather around, and as it's during the festival time of Passover, and there's a fever pitch and a frenzy within their community, they believe that even more greater things are going to happen. So we're a little bit stunned that as Jesus enters into Jerusalem in this moment of climax, that the story is put on hold, that the plot stalls here for a moment. I draw our attention once again back to Mark chapter 11, verse 11, where Mark says this, that when Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts, he looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went to Bethany with the 12. Here we have a bit of a, bit of a letdown of sorts. Um, If there were sound effects in the reading of Mark's gospel, we might hear that unfortunate music, that that chime that you hear on the prices, right? When somebody overbids on something, right? Uh, We didn't expect this. We didn't expect this delay. We didn't expect for something like this to happen. And what is the purpose of this pause in the story? We're expecting something big to happen from here. But maybe Mark puts us in there on purpose. This was in God's providence during the story at this time. Because it allows us to have a bit of reflection of what actually could happen next. I mean, Jesus enters into Jerusalem, not with a massive army ready to march on Jerusalem in order to take over like the people are expecting as we hear in their songs. I mean, Jesus has a big crowd of poor people, not with weapons, but with palm branches and with songs. Jesus doesn't come in on a war horse into Jerusalem, but on a domesticated animal used for farming. Now, this seems to be a contrast to what happened when Pontius Pilate, the leader from Rome, came into Jerusalem. Jesus comes from the east side of the city into the city of Jerusalem. But at some point earlier, Pontius Pilate came in from the west side, and you better believe, and I better believe, that he came on a war horse with legions of armies, armed to the teeth, ready to take over. Jesus' march on Jerusalem was a parody. So this pause, this entering into Jerusalem, and then nothing happening caused us to ask some questions, inappropriate ones. Does Jesus and his movement really have what it takes to do anything significant? Sure, we're all excited that something could take place, but if we can just do some simple math, And our conclusion might be that maybe Jesus is up against something that he cannot overcome. And perhaps this moment, Mark allows a little bit of cynicism to enter into the plot to prepare us 
for the events that happen in front of us. I think that happens sometimes in our life too. We're expecting great and big things, but then at some point in those pauses, we have some cynicism that enters into our life. For instance, if you and I have been in the corporate church long enough, you know that there's a lot of enthusiasm in the life of the church. God gives us the task of reading from the scripture text and getting together and studying and praying and, and mobilizing and brainstorming and casting vision. Millions of people interact with churches and millions of dollars are spent behind visions in order to reach more people for Christ. But if we were to be honest, sometimes all that planning and all that praying and all that mobilizing sometimes doesn't add up to all the things that we're quite expecting. And we're tempted to have cynical hearts and minds as well. There was a study done in 2008 from Gordon Conwell Seminary. They, they gathered together all the church budgets that they could find. And they put them together to make a mass sum. And then they counted from those same churches how many people were converted to Christianity through their efforts and baptized into the body of believers. And they calculated that for every baptism, for every conversion, it cost the church in North America $330,000. Now, on the one hand, we shouldn't put a price tag on a, one person's life who goes from darkness to light, who comes from, from the out of the kingdom of God into the kingdom of God. This is eternal life that we're talking about. On the other hand, we are gathering together. We're trying to put mission together. We're trying to forecast the life of the church into the future. And sometimes things like that convince us that perhaps we have some hard days ahead that all of our efforts and all of our energies may not add up to much. And it's not that we lack enthusiasm in the life of the church. It's not that we're outside of God's will. It's just sometimes what we're desiring is just, just out of reach from what we can actually achieve. Uh, one of my friends, Pastor Jay Madden, says that sometimes in the life of the church, we kick way too many field goals instead of marching it all the way down the field to score touchdowns. And sometimes it leads to a lingering cynicism within the body of Christ. But it happens in our personal lives as well, doesn't it? I mean, there are times that we want to grow in our faith and so we make plans and we buy books and we carve out time and we get accountability partners and we really try to grow in our faith. But then life gets disrupted we realize we don't have enough encouraging community in our lives to help us down the road. And instead of growing in our faith, we have these lingering thoughts of shame that we've messed up again, that we don't have the strength, that we're not smart enough, that we're not quite capable to grow in our Christian faith. And so what gets the last word is not God's confidence in us, but all the times which we have tried and we have failed. So how do we move onward in these moments when our knees are weak and our arms are heavy and our minds are racked with cynicism and guilt and unbelief? Is there a way for us to move forward? 
what we see is if we're going to go on in our faith that we need to recognize Jesus once again because Jesus knew what lied ahead, lied ahead for him when he entered into Jerusalem. Jesus knew that the odds were stacked against him. It was not lost upon him how challenging the next few days were going to be for him. In fact, earlier in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus confesses that the Son of Man did not come to be served on but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was aware that if he was gonna go onward, if he was gonna go forward in his faith, it was gonna come at a cost. It was, come, it was gonna come at a great risk. And so as we look about going forward in our own lives, before we can try anything else, we need to take a moment and rest in the power that exists in Jesus. Jesus knew what lied ahead for him, and yet he pressed onward. So as Jesus goes into Jerusalem, we can learn a couple things. There's grace in his commitment going forward. And there's a couple things that shape our faith this morning. The first one is this, is that Jesus' love for us is greater than any fear or threat that he faced during his earthly ministry. Human beings, we are driven by our greatest and deepest desires, the strongest desires that we have. No matter what we think, our desires always win. And even though Jesus knew in his mind the, the commitment that he needed to have for all the hardships that he would face ahead, his strongest desire was not for his own self-preservation, but for the love of God's people. He knew God's mission for the world that he would have to lay down his life in order to rescue and to ransom all of God's people back to God. And so instead of leaning into the desire of being in safety, Jesus leaned into the desire of his love for us. And so where we begin our own journeys is to reckon once again that God's great love for us has ushered us into this life of faith and therefore we can rest upon God's love for us. And after we've meditated on that, we can think of the second thing that this text shows us this morning is that the way Jesus faced uncertainty influences our own moments at the crossroad. What we see is that faith has a direction and that direction is forward, that we're, we're at a crossroads of giving up or going further. The way that we go further is to walk the walk of faith or to the, as the words of the Apostle Paul is to live by faith and not by sight is to move forward. It's to calculate what life is going to be as we continue to go step by step in the walk of faith. And that's what we see as the pattern of behavior for us, for those of us who find ourselves in Christ, is that we move forward leaning and resting and trusting in God. And as we move forward and as we go onward, we find the life that is truly life, a life where we risk, where we sacrifice, where we give extra efforts in order to go forward and experience a deeper and deeper commitment with Jesus. At a critical piece of the film Onward, Ian, the main character, is faced with a the decision. They knew that time was running out and they had to cross a great chasm to get from one side to the other and there was no bridge available. And so Ian had to trust in an imaginary bridge spell that was in the spell book. But we had to see, as we'll see in this clip, he had to walk by faith those last few feet. Let's go ahead and check out that clip together this morning. Bridge Rigor in Physia! 
Hey, you can do this. Ian learned something at that moment. He was integrated into a life of wonder, a life that lies behind, beyond sometimes the calculations that we do on scratch paper. And every time he took another step, he learned more and more. It's a life of faith. It was a life of belief. And the same thing happens in our lives. We, we are unsure when we're on one side of that chasm, but we're, when we're encouraged to step out and to step further and to step further, we discover more and more about who God is. This reminds me of a video clip that perhaps you saw this summer of a young five-year-old boy named R.J. Hampton Jr. who was trying to overcome his fear of swimming in a swimming pool. Let's take in that video together this morning. Go to Miss Margaret. Say, here I come, Miss Margaret. Say, here I come, Miss Margaret. One, two, three. Let's go. Say, here I come, Miss Margaret. You got it. Just jump off that way, RJ. RJ, say, here I come, Miss Margaret. Say it. RJ, lean forward like this. And just go forward. I'm right here. Look. Don't hit your head. Not very far, baby. I'm right here. Lean over. Alright man, first time with, without me in the water with you. Remember, get you a breath and swim all the way to the edge. To the wall, come on. You got it. Good job. No matter what our age is, that's how the journey onward begins. It begins with some shaky knees. It begins with tear that sometimes washes over us. But bit by bit, as we trust God, we can move onward. We can face those challenges and move forward. You know, this time that we're experiencing right now is allowing us to face a lot of realities. 
And many have suggested they've appreciated the time at home because this allowed them to push reset on a few things, critical things in life. Some of us have been able to get connected with our families again because uh, we're not working in the office so much or we're not commuting so much. And so we're able to spend more time together. So people have been blessed by the time at home. I think there are probably some of us though, at least if your experience has been mine, that we've had some moments of quiet and we've had a lot of time for deeper reflection and we've actually been confronted with some areas of our life that are scary, that perhaps challenge us, that intimidate us. Now, when life was busy, we could push those things aside because we had to get to work and we had a job to do. We had a paycheck to get and we had to do other things in order to preoccupy our minds and our thoughts. But now that life is more still, we have a choice about facing those fears or not facing them. What we see is that Jesus was willing to face what was ahead of him with faith and assurance that God was going to be with him. And that's going to be our encouragement this morning is to not hide from these things any longer, but to move onward. In his book, Scary Close, author Donald Miller faced one of these fears, one of these things in his life. He came to a point where he recognized that he had a, a pattern of behavior where he had a fear of commitment and a fear of relational intimacy. He had this cyclical pattern of dating women and then having it all unravel in a heap of, of, uh, of hardship. And uh, he was actually engaged to a woman and that engagement ended where he was hurt and she was hurt because of the things that they said and did to one another. And so in this moment of lowliness, his friend Bob Goff entered into his life and did something quite unusual. Instead of telling Don, hey Don, I told you that this was going to happen to you because this has been your pattern of behavior for quite some time. You date and then you commit and then you back out of commitment because you're afraid of commitment. Instead of speaking the truth that way, Bob did something that was quite upside down. He actually responded to the news that Don broke off his engagement by saying this, Don, you are really good at relationships. In fact, you've always been good at relationships. And he repeated that over and over again. Now, at first, this was simply absurd. There was no physical evidence that he was good at relationships. But Donald Miller confessed something that over time, as his friend Bob affirmed him again and again, that the gap between who he was in relationships and who he wanted to become began to get smaller and smaller until he was transformed until he was completely healed of his relationship issues and he could move on with commitment in his life. I wonder if that's not what's at stake for some of us this morning. Each of us are in touch with a piece of shame in our lives. We're quite in touch with our own brokenness. We're quite in touch with the ways in which we have failed and we have not measured up. And those voices inside are louder than sometimes the affirmations that try to restore us and that try to heal us. So this morning, my hope is as we start Holy Week today, and as we seek to move onward in our faith journey, that we would follow Jesus all the way to the cross, that we would 
watch his commitment to fulfilling God's purpose for his own life, even in the face of difficulty and suffering and hardship. And that as we watch him go to the cross, that we would find a resolve and a commitment deep within us. And as we follow Jesus from that cross and through the empty tomb a week from now on Easter morning, I pray that we would recognize that Jesus is raising all the dead places within us as he's raising all the dead things in the world around us. And I pray that you and I would be comforted and that we'd be emboldened for the next season of our faith journey ahead. Let's pray together this morning. God, we thank you that you're a good and gracious God. And God, we thank you that you are not done with the work that you've started in us, but you've promised that you're gonna carry it to its completion. And so God, today I pray that you would do work deep within us that you would convince us to walk by faith and not by sight, that we would journey onward, that we would press on, and that we would trust in the work that you're doing within us. I ask all these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen.